It's good to see everyone out this evening, and I encourage you to take out your Bibles and follow along to test the things I have to say to see if it is by God's Word. If we find it to be the truth, I hope that we'll take and apply it in our everyday walks of life, that we can be better servants of God in the future than we have been in the past. Several years ago, there was, and you may have seen it, this picture surfacing around the internet. Men is a joke. I don't remember if it was around April Fool's or some other time of year. But it read this, Tired of reading scriptures that don't make sense? Wish you could remove the verses you don't like. The cut and paste Bible is the answer. Keep only the verses that you like and remove everything else. Easy loose-leaf design allows you to arrange the pages in whatever order you think is best, and even combine all of your favorite verses into a single book. This was meant as a joke several years ago about this cut-and-paste Bible. Cut out the verses you like. Tired of reading the ones that don't make sense? Maybe there's the ones you don't like. Just cut out the ones you like. You've got this one, this cut-and-paste Bible. Paste in the verses you do. It's loose leaf. Put it in whatever order you want. Put all your favorite verses in one book. Again, this was meant as a joke. But you know, this picture right here is a picture of the Bible of Thomas Jefferson who took and cut out passages, verses and phrases in the Scriptures he did not like. He did the very thing that that joke was talking about several years earlier. And again... This, this cut and paste Bible, the idea is sort of ridiculous. The idea is, is somewhat humorous to think about the fact that they made this sort of as a joke. Cut out what you don't, cut out the ones you like and paste it into this thing. And again, as I said, this was meant as a joke. And when you think about it for a second, it's somewhat humorous that somebody might come up with the idea, the cut and paste Bible. You know, sadly, it is true. Sadly, it is true. There are many that have a cut-and-paste Bible, not in the sense that they have one that says cut-and-paste on the side like the picture, and they cut out the verses they want, and they put it in there. Not in the sense that they cut out a verse and paste it in somewhere else, but there are many that have a cut-and-a-paste Bible in their application of Scripture. There are those that would look at the Scripture and they'll cut out what they don't like and they'll paste in what they think it should stay instead. There are many that have a cut and a paste Bible today. So the question we really want to raise is, since this is something that unfortunately is very common, we don't have people that are actually cutting verses, or at least not many, cutting verses out of the Bible. But in application, that's what they've done. The question I want us to explore this evening is, do you have a cut-and-paste Bible? Do I have a cut-and-paste Bible? Is it possible that in what we believe and teach, that we're cutting out from the Scriptures and pasting in what we think it should say instead? I think there are four areas we're going to look at tonight, and there are many more we could talk about that time would not permit that people cut and paste. But I want to talk about just four areas with you this evening where people cut out what the Bible says and paste in what they want it to say. The first of those is, is that many people cut out and talk about and paste in their interpretation on the topic of marriage and divorce and remarriage. 
So the question is, do we have a cut and paste Bible when it comes to marriage and divorce? You know, often we talk about marriage and divorce and remarriage as if it's this overly complicated, hard to understand subject. But what the Bible has to say about the topic is very straightforward. Number one, it's pointed out that marriage is for life. Go to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. In Romans chapter 7, Paul is writing, talking about the old law, that we're dead to the old law. Those are here, you're bound by the law, they were bound by the law as long as they lived, but now you're dead to the old law. And he uses this illustration of the marriage relationship. Listen to what he says beginning at verse 2. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband, listen, as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband lives, she marries another, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. He says they're bound by law as long as they live. The, the, the marriage relationship is not something as many view it as, as sort of an enhanced uh, form of dating where you get married and if it doesn't work, just divorce and go marry somebody else. That's how many today view it. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But marriage is for life. They're bound together as long as they live. Do you know what? We're in Romans 7. We need to understand that, and this is very important to our understanding of the, the subject of divorce and remarriage, is the fact of the distinction in the marriage and the bond. Look at Romans 7-2 again. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. She's bound to him as long as he lives. Now listen to this. Verse 3 says, So then, if while her husband lives, she is marries another man. You see, verse 2 talks about she's bound over here to this man she's, she's married to originally. She may divorce him, but she's still bound to that man. She may marry another, but she's still bound to the first man. That bond is not broken. There was no, we're, we're talking about a case where we'll talk in a second about the, the, the one cause for divorce, but we need to understand that unless it's a scriptural divorce, and or unless the spouse dies, that bond is not broken. They're bound. She's bound to him as long as he lives. Even though, even though in verse 3, she marries another man. So you have husband number one over here that she's been married to, and she divorces him for, we'll just say, irreconcilable differences. That's what people often talk about today. She divorces him for irreconcilable differences. And then she comes over here and meets this man and she marries him. She may be married to this man, but she's bound to this man over here. Romans chapter 7 is very important in our understanding for a couple of reasons. Number one, Romans 7 is the only passage that explains why she is an adulteress. We go over to Matthew 19, it talks about that one that puts away their spouse and their spouse remarries, they're guilty of adultery. We, we see that brought up in other passages, but Romans 7 tells us why, because they're still bound to the first one. 
The first, the, the first maid is alive. The divorce was not for the cause of fornication and they're still bound to them. And so when they go and marry another, they're an adulterer or an adulteress because they're still bound to somebody else. Number two, this answers all questions about who has the right to marry. Romans 7 answers the question about all the people that have the right to marry. Anybody who is not bound to somebody else can have the right to marry, but anybody that is bound does not have the right. Romans 7 can tell me, when I understand the marriage and the bond, Romans 7 tells me who can and who cannot get married. Because when I understand that if somebody's bound, they don't have a right, and if somebody's not bound, then they do have the right to get married, then when I look at it, the question we ask about divorce and marriage, who has the right to get married, is, is there a bond? If there is, then they don't have the right to remarry. If there is not, then they can. So the question becomes a difference, is understanding the difference in the marriage and the bond. When I understand Romans 7, it becomes a lot easier to understand what the rest of the Bible says concerning divorce and remarriage. We need to also understand there is one cause for divorce. In Matthew chapter 5, we often go to Matthew 19, 9, but in Matthew 5, it says the same thing in Matthew 5, 32. But I say to you, that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Look again. Whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality, any reason except for the cause of sexual immorality, then... They cause her to commit adultery. You see, you need to understand in this, there's one cause for divorce. It could not be simpler. It could not be stated any more obvious. In Matthew chapter 19 and in verse 9, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. How could it be stated any plainer? How else could it be stated to make it obvious there is but one cause for divorce and that's the cause of fornication? For any reason except for that, they're guilty of adultery because when they marry another, they're guilty of adultery. For any reason except for that, they cannot get divorced. It's important to understand as we talk about this, not just the exception, but I think Matthew 19, a better understanding of Matthew 19 as well, just like in Romans 7, a better understanding of Matthew 19 goes a long way in our understanding of this. Go to Matthew 19. Matthew chapter 19. You've heard this before. Going through this text and what is said here in Matthew 19. Look down in verse number 6. So then they are no longer two but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. That is very straightforward and very simple. What God has joined together, let not man separate. Do not divorce. It's pointed out in verses 5 and 6 that the two are joined together. Back up to verse 5. 
For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. It's important we understand the, the word joined of verse 5. The Greek word translated joined in verse 5 means to glue or cement together. When is the last time you use glue to put something together or you cement to put some things together that you had the intent of it eventually coming apart? When you glue something, when you use glue, your intent is for it to hold together, to not come apart. When you use cement to hold things together, that's what it's used for, to hold it together, not to come apart. The idea of the glued or cemented is they're inseparably linked. They're together and not to be separated. It's permanent. Unfortunately, there are many today that have the idea that in marriage they're joined together but think that joined is by more like scotch tape and not the being glued or cemented together. That is something that if it doesn't work out where you just easily separate. You just easily get a divorce. No problem at all. It wasn't all that long ago that to speak of anybody, anybody who had had a divorce was like speaking of them like they had a play. You'd live on a street, and these people on your street, none of them may attend the church of the New Testament. They may not even be that religious, but the general principle 40 and 50 years ago was marriage is for life. And so if somebody on the street got a divorce, it was like, hey, that couple over there has got a divorce. You know, that woman over there, she's been married before. She's divorced. And it was something that was, was thought shameful because marriage is for life. But now, but now, not only, not only is that the thought in the world, there are a lot of brethren that take positions on divorce and marriage that say you can separate. What used to be something that even the world looked down upon is something now that even brethren don't really seem to care as much about. There are many that teach error on divorce and remarriage. We'll talk about some of those more in a second. View it as if it's not permanent, like what is taught in the Scriptures, as if they're not glued or cemented together. That's what the Scripture says. I do want to answer this before we move any further and talk about some of the error taught. There are, there are some that go to Matthew 19 and say that Matthew 19.9 and the one cause is the only cause for somebody to remarry. I want us to understand this. We're not talking right now about marriage and divorce and remarriage in that we want to talk about marriage and divorce. Let's understand the rule in Matthew 19.9. Matthew 19 and in verse 9 is not Jesus saying this is the only cause for divorce but whereby you can get married. He says in verse 9, this is the only cause for divorce. Look at verse 3. The argument is that he was asked about those that could divorce and remarry. Look at verse 3. Is it lawful? Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? When the Pharisees came to Jesus to test him, they did not ask Jesus, "Is it can a man divorce his wife for any cause and, and remarry? That was not the question. The question was, can they divorce for any reason? I want you to notice what he answers in the text. Number one, you might, if you write in your Bible, you might want to write out, underline this, write out beside this. Number one, verse four, the answer is no. Have you not read, He that made them at the beginning made them male and female? You know what He just said? He made one man for one woman. 
The answer is no. He doesn't come out directly here at any point and say no in these first few verses. He says, he says, have you not read he that made him at the beginning made the male and female? One man for one woman. That's one no. Look at verse two. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. They're glued or cemented together. We already saw that. What he just said in verse five is no. Look at the latter half of verse five into the first half of verse six. And the two shall become one flesh, so then they are no longer two, but one flesh. That's no. And then, what God has joined together, let not men separate. That's no. The question was not about can you divorce and remarry for any reason. The question in Matthew 19 was, can a man divorce his wife for any reason? Here's what Jesus said. No, 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 no. And they understood that. Because they want to know then why Moses commanded to give a certificate of divorce. Now, he did not command. Because of the hardness of your heart, Jesus pointed out, he permitted you in verse 8. But from the beginning, it was not so. And so in verse 9, here is the one cause for divorce, except it be for fornication. Matthew 19 clearly shows us there's one cause for divorce. The question was about divorce. The answer was four times no. And then he says at the end, the only cause is for fornication. There it is. You cannot divorce for any cause. Now, despite the fact that the teaching seems fairly straightforward, there are many false doctrines that have come about on this topic. We're not just talking about false doctrines by those of the world. These are positions held by brethren. There's the position of middle divorce. Middle divorce is saying that if you have two people that are married, these two people are married and she files for divorce and he doesn't want a divorce. And the divorce goes through, but he, he protested the divorce, he didn't want a divorce. And then later on she remarries then that he's now mentally put her away. That's what that's teaching. Because he didn't want to have the divorce. But that's not the process in Matthew 19. In Matthew 19, the divorce took place, the putting away took place, because the immorality had taken place, and then is when one remarried. Then is when the spouse may have remarried. Then is when the, the innocent party would remarry. Then is when the guilty party may go remarry. We'll talk about the guilty party in just a second. We need to understand, in Matthew 19 and in verse 9, the immorality takes place, and then the divorce takes place. But the way that mental divorce teaches is, here's the divorce, and then the immorality takes place, and then you mentally put one away. That's not in keeping with what Matthew 19 is saying. Matthew 19 says the divorce took place because the fornication took place. There is no such thing as a mental divorce. A divorce is a divorce. There's no mentally divorcing taking place. This is the putting away that's taking place here in Matthew 19. This divorce took place because of immorality. Mental divorce does not fit with the Scripture say. But you know, not only are there those that teach a mental divorce, there are those that teach the guilty party can remarry. That the guilty party can remarry. I want you to think about this for just a second from a logical standpoint. Think about it for just a second from a logical standpoint. You have a couple... This is the consequence of teaching the guilty party can remarry. You have a couple that's not getting along. They've tried. They can't seem to fix out their problems. Both of them are, are Christians, but and they know they can't get a divorce for just any reason. And if, if the guilty party can remarry, he can go cheat on her. 
She can put him away. She can remarry and he can remarry. But if they divorced for any other reason, that, that neither one could remarry. So think about that. What that's doing is, giving, that would be giving somebody the permission to remarry for what we would consider the greater sin. You divorced because the biscuits were burned. You divorced because she spent too much money at the store. You divorced because he came home late from work one day and didn't call. Oh, there's no right to remarry. But if one of you cheats, then both of you can remarry. That logically does not fit with Scriptures. But not only does it logically fit, even from a grammatical standpoint, it doesn't even fit in the text of Matthew 19.9. It's an adverbial phrase in the first part of verse 9 because it's describing the one who puts away. But it had to be an ejectable phrase in the second half because it would be describing the one who is put away. Even grammatically, it doesn't even fit in the text. We need to understand the guilty party cannot remarry. That phrase for sexual morality does not fit in the last half. Logically, nor even grammatically. Why would it be that somebody guilty of immorality could remarry, but because you put away your spouse for any other cause, you couldn't? It does not fit with Scriptures. There are those that teach you can divorce and not remarry. They would argue from 1 Corinthians 7 that we saw last week, and in verse 11, and, or 10 and 11, where it talks about that if they, they're put away. But that's not what that is teaching. First Corinthians chapter seven is talking about if somebody did that and there's not they they can't reckon and they're not reconciled. But I want you to think about Matthew nineteen for just a second that we looked at already. The question in Matthew nineteen was not about who can divorce and remarry. The question in Matthew nineteen was who can divorce, and we saw the answer was only those that put away their spouse for the cause of sexual immorality. For no other cause, for no other cause can divorce take place. You cannot divorce and remarry. There are some that would argue you can divorce for the kingdom's sake. If you think it would benefit you spiritually to put away your spouse, divorce for the kingdom's sake. That's what some would teach. Aside from the fact that that's not in keeping with Scriptures, I want you to think about this for a second. If you give me a reason for divorce, I can find a way to make it for the kingdom's sake. Do you think about that for a second? You name any cause for divorce, we can find some way to make an argument for the kingdom's sake. He says she burned the biscuits. Well, how is that for the kingdom's sake? Well, she burned the biscuits. It made me mad. You know, the Bible tells us not to be angry. And I knew she kept burning them because this is the third time she's done it that I'd get angry at her. So I divorced her so I could control my anger. It's for the kingdom's sake. She says he, he, he went out and bought a whole bunch of stuff and, and, and got insurmountable debt. We couldn't pay it. The Bible says, oh, no man, anything. So I divorced him because he got all this debt. There's irreconcilable differences. Well, we knew we couldn't fulfill the roles God would have us to fulfill. We weren't fulfilling the roles that God had given to us as we should, so we divorced because we knew we couldn't meet that command. So we divorced because we figured if we can't meet the command, we might as well divorce because, well, it's for the kingdom's sake. That way we're not violating that command of God. You see, we can make anything for the kingdom's sake. We can twist anything in. But that's not fitting with Scriptures. There's one cause for divorce. Now, those that even would argue, among brethren, divorce for any cause. Divorce for any cause. That's not in keeping with Scripture. In Matthew 19.9, the only cause for divorce is sexual immorality. Not for the kingdom's sake. Not divorce and not remarry. Not for any cause. It's not fitting with Scripture. The guilty party cannot remarry. That's not in fitting with Scripture's. 
nor is the mental divorce position fitting with Scriptures. The divorce took place because of the immorality, not something that mentally was done later. Now, people ignore this. The reason for all this false doctrine is people ignore the passages for whatever words they find, whatever verses they find, they think best benefit them. Sometimes they don't even take a phrase in Scripture. Some might take a phrase in Scripture and twist it to fit what they want. Others don't even do that. They just paste in what they want it to say. They cut out what the Bible says concerning divorce and remarriage and paste in their own interpretation and their own way of thinking. And that's what the Bible says about divorce and remarriage. The Bible says marriage is for life. There's only one cause for divorce. And that's for the cause of immorality. And anything other than that is a false doctrine. Anything other than that is not in keeping with Scriptures. Now the question is, is your Bible cut and paste on the topic of divorce and remarriage? Is my Bible cut and paste on the topic of divorce and remarriage? Is what we believe and what we practice in keeping with the Scriptures and in keeping with what Jesus taught? Let me tell you a second area in which there are those that have a cut and paste Bible, and that is when it comes to roles in the home. The roles in the home are very straightforward. They're commanded. They're very specifically given. In Ephesians chapter 5, it is commanded that husbands are to lead in love. In Ephesians 5, it says the husband is the head of the wife. In verse 23, it says later on, he's to love her. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself for her. Husbands ought to love their own wives, ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. Verse 28, he who loves his wife loves himself. Husbands, lead the home and love your wives. It is taught in Scriptures that wives are to submit. In Ephesians 5.22, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and He is the Savior of the body. In Titus chapter 2 and in verse 5, it says to be discreet, chaste. This is what the, young, the older women were to teach the younger women. Homemakers or working at home. It would be homemakers. In Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, it says, Children are to obey and to honor. In Ephesians 6, 1 through 3, Children obey your parents, and the Lord for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. And then Ephesians 6 and in verse 4 teaches that you fathers do not provoke your children wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. You instruct them, you teach them what they need to learn. Those roles are very specific. Husbands lead in love. Wives submit and be homemakers. Children honor and obey. And fathers train up your children in the way of the Lord. But we live in a society that wants to be politically correct. And, and we hear people talk about it. And the fact is that when we talk about politically correct and how people interpret it, that it's not politically correct. It's politically incorrect to fulfill the roles in the home. It's not fitting with what the, the, the 21st century would have you would have you believe you see in the politically correct society husbands shouldn't lead because if a husband tries to be a leader then he's trying to be a dictator that's the idea that those of the world would have if you lead in the home you're trying to dictate to be the dictator in the home and that doesn't fit with the 21st century that's how they interpret it the 21st century would teach those of the world today would say, hey, wives, don't submit to your husbands because you have equal rights. You have the same equal rights as he does. That's what they're telling people. And so you shouldn't submit. 
That's an outdated principle, you might hear somebody say. So, don't submit. You have an equal right to Him. Children, if that's the case, and this is the way our society would teach it, is then the children shouldn't honor and obey because they would say the children have the right to make their own choices. Now, I understand children will make their own choices, but here's what we're talking about. They think that the children should choose from the youngest of ages whatever makes them happy, even if that's what their parents don't think. That's what society is teaching. But that's not keeping with the role in the home. What about this fact? That a parent shouldn't teach a child because the child should learn their own path and make their own decisions. Now, there are states, there are areas in our own country that if, you're, if your young child came to you that's a boy and says, I think I'm a girl, then you shouldn't teach and instruct them because that, that, that's not good for them. You let them make their own choice. It don't matter that they're four or five years old. It don't matter that they're eight or nine years old. You, you let them make their own choice and that it would be illegal to try and teach them otherwise and help get them counseling? Yes. There are places already in our own country that would not have you to do that. You know what that's saying? That's saying parents don't teach your children. Let your children do what they want to do. Let them do what makes them happy. You see, the roles God has assigned for the husband, the wife, for the child, and for the parents do not fit with our society today. And they would tell you that this is outdated and you shouldn't do that. We need to understand something. It doesn't matter what everybody else is doing. It doesn't matter what our politically correct society says, what what the majority are doing. What matters is what God said. And it don't matter if we stand alone, we still need to stand. In Matthew 7, 13, <coughs> excuse me, Matthew 7, 13, Enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to the life, and there are few who find it. The majority are doing what is wrong. And our society as a whole may say, this is not what you should do anymore, that's outdated. Our society may say, may look at you as a whole as if you're a terrible person for doing it. We need to understand that whatever God's requirement is, it doesn't matter what everybody else is saying, it doesn't matter what everybody else is doing, we still have the requirement to keep the command of God. The majority are going to be lost ultimately. And so we need to fulfill the requirement of what God would have us to do even if we stand alone. Even if we stand alone, we should still stand. The question we need to ask is, is your Bible copy and paste? Is my Bible copy and paste when it comes to the roles in the home? Are we willing to fulfill the roles that God has assigned or do we cut out what it says and paste in our own interpretation? Unfortunately, there are many today who cut out what the Bible says and paste in that more politically correct interpretation. Men may not want to lead. Wives may not want to submit. Children not obey. You cut out what it says and paste in your own interpretation. That's how many do it today. Is our Bible copy and paste when it comes to the roles in the home? It better not be. Because we need to fulfill the command of God. Take a third area. And where many people have a copy and paste Bible, we need to ask the question is, do we have a copy and paste, or cut and paste Bible rather, is when it comes to church discipline. The instructions to church discipline are very plain and straightforward. In Matthew 18, it gives us the, uh, a process to take when the sin is against us. If your brother sins against you, this is the process you take. 
We do not, we need to understand, we do not, if somebody sins against us, go straight to the elders who then, when turn, we turn around and talk to them and then take it before the whole congregation and withdraw from somebody. If the sin is against you, here's what you do. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, verse 15 of Matthew 18, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. So if he hears you, then all is well. There's no need for anybody else to know what took place. The sin was against you, and you take it between you and him alone. But if he doesn't hear you, then take one or two more that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. So a brother sins against me. I go and I talk to them. They don't listen to me. I may come and get a couple of the elders, and we go talk to them. And we talk to them for a little bit, and they don't still listen. Then, if they refuse to hear at that point, then you tell it to the church. And if he refuses to hear the church, then you let him be to you like a tax collector. Or he then a tax collector. But there's a process to take when the sin is against an individual. Now, things are different if it's a sin that everybody already knows about. If somebody's guilty of adultery, and we all know they're guilty of adultery, that's a different case in which we need to talk to them, but we wouldn't have to have one go to them. We could go ahead and go down to the phase where maybe multiple people go and talk to them. But this is in the case where we have a sin against us. But if somebody sins against us, we don't run and tell everybody, hey, you want to know what so-and-so did against me? I go and I talk to them between me and them alone, and then we go to, two, to one or two more, and then we go to the church if they don't listen then, and then if they refuse to listen to the whole church, then we then they're to be as a heathen and a tax collector to us. But that's a whole process to be taken in the case of a sin against an individual. But ultimately, we need to understand the end result of it is that they're handed over to Satan, as 1 Corinthians 5 would put it, or they're withdrawn from. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 1 Corinthians 5 and in verse 4, it says, In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together alone with, along with my Spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, it says, But as for you, my brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. And if anyone does not obey your word in this epistle, note that person... Do not be, keep company with them. Verse 6 of the same text would say, you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly. That's our command to do, is to hand them over to Satan or withdraw from them. And then we do not associate with them. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5 it says, But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetousness or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. Now there are those that would take here in, in verse 11 and say, You see, we don't need to eat with those who are guilty of sin. And so we can go to the ball game together and go to the movies together, and go shopping together, and do this and that together. We just can't eat with them. Understand here that 1 Corinthians 5.11 says, does not say do not keep company with them, and not do not eat with them, not even to eat with such a one. That's very That word even is very important here. Because you think of all the other ways in which you associate with somebody, eating would be something that would not be quite, it would be lower on the totem pole than going to the movies together, or going shopping together, or going to the ball game together, or playing board games together, whatever it is, that eating would be much lower on that list. And when he says not even eat, he's not saying don't eat, he's saying not even to the point that you eat. That doesn't mean I can go to the movies as long as I don't order popcorn. That doesn't mean that we can go to the ball game, but I can't have them over to the house when it's done. That means saying, do not associate with them. 
2 Thessalonians 3, 6, You withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and does not walk according to the tradition you receive from us. The ESV says you keep away from any brother. The message is though not all, is not a very accurate translation, but in this passage it captures the thought well. Refuse to have anything to do with. You don't associate with them. That's the command we're given. You withdraw from them and then you don't associate. But, many today ignore God's instructions on church discipline. I think there are three key ways we ignore God's instruction on church discipline. Number one, there are churches that do not practice the church discipline. There are churches that do not withdraw from the disorder. That's the first way in which God's command on church discipline is ignored. There's a there are congregations that are doing what Corinth was doing, where they have somebody among them in sin, but they don't do anything about it. We're not talking about where somebody we find out somebody's in sin, and we're taking time to work towards withdrawal, but we're trying to restore them before we withdraw. We're talking about somebody may be there that's been in sin for a long time, but nobody cares. They just don't do anything about it. Not withdrawing from somebody. I think it's important we understand something about church discipline. It may seem like this person over here is guilty of something that is rather insignificant. But when you ignore this insignificant thing, this somewhat what you think is insignificant thing over here, when a congregation ignores that, then when this bigger, a little bit bigger problem comes up, how are you going to discipline them because you didn't discipline this person over here? And then this problem over here comes up. It's bigger than this one, which is bigger than this one, but I didn't deal with this one or this one, so how can we deal with this one? You see, it's a gradual process. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, if they do not deal with the fornicator among them, they're going to have a much wider spread problem among them before they realize it. You know, how is a parent going to teach their teenage child not to engage in the sin of fornication when you've got a brother over here that's not been withdrawn from this guilt that has his father's wife? Somebody over here may think, well, it must be okay because the church won't do anything about this brother over here. Is it a big deal I haven't been to services for a long, long time because this guy over here's got his father's wife. They ain't doing anything about him. What you're doing, what, what happens when churches aren't practicing church discipline is they're ultimately, though they may not realize it, encouraging the sin. Because by not dealing with this one, you're saying, we think you're okay. So then everybody else thinks it might be okay if they engage in the same sin or something that... Something else, and then eventually it's widespread. There are churches today that have widespread problems of sin. They may have many people among them that need to be disciplined that have not been disciplined. But we need to understand this. Every church, listen, every church, without exception, every church that has a widespread problem of sin... Every church, every New Testament church that has not properly practiced discipline, that has this widespread problem of sin, began by not disciplining the first case. You didn't discipline the first one, so you can't discipline the second one. Now you've got 50 cases. Now you've got 20 cases, however many you may have, but you didn't discipline the first, and now it's a widespread problem. Every church, without exception, that has a widespread problem of sin began because of not showing discipline to the first case. And now there are many more that have not been disciplined. And the second way in which we ignore God's instruction, there are those that ignore the instructions by acting as if nothing has changed. The command not even to eat with such a one. 
refuse to have anything to do with the Second Thessalonians 3, 6 says in the message. Don't associate with them. Don't keep company with them. But there are those that when somebody's been withdrawn from, act as if nothing has changed at all. Yeah, I know the church withdrew from them, but I'm still going to have them over. I'm still going to go to the ball game with them. We're still going to go shopping together. We're still going to go to the movies together. We're still going to do this and that together. Act as if nothing changed at all. We need to realize something. When we're treating somebody who's been withdrawn from, somebody who's been noted they're guilty of sin, like nothing has changed at all, you've endorsed what they're doing. We may not realize that. But if I'm associating with somebody who's caught up in sin, somebody who's been marked, somebody that's been withdrawn from and I act like nothing's changed, what I'm telling them, though I may not realize it, is I'm telling them, I'm okay with what you're doing. We wonder why church discipline is ineffective. If somebody's been disciplined, but we're not doing our, our part, then what, what do we expect to happen? Then another way, though, is that there are those that would act rudely and maybe ignore, but not admonish. We are commanded in 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 15 to warn or admonish them as a brother. I need to take the opportunity if I see that person, if I'm walking through the store and I see that brother that's been withdrawn from, encourage them, talk to them, try and get them to come back. Maybe see if they'll sit down and study. Try and find some way to teach them the truth to bring them back. But to those that might see them walking down the aisle and turn and walk the other way and ignore them. That's not keeping with the command either. That's the other reason church discipline is ineffective. Two, main re- two of the main reasons church discipline is ineffective is we either A, act like nothing's wrong at all, or B, we don't admonish at all, we just ignore. That's the reason church discipline can be ineffective. Does the church where we attend, does the church as a whole have a cut and paste Bible when it comes to church discipline? Do we as individuals have a cut and paste Bible when it comes to discipline? Oh, maybe the church is practicing discipline, but we as individuals may not be doing our part. Not doing our part. When we're associating with those who are guilty of sin, we violate the command of God when it comes to church discipline. There are many today that have a cut and paste Bible on the topic of church discipline. But let me tell you lastly this, this evening, that there are many that have a cut and paste Bible when it comes to church, to, to assembling. The fact that we are commanded to assemble is, is quite obvious. And let us consider one another, Hebrews 10.24, in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another in so much the more as you see the day approaching. And we go there and we talk about you see you need to assemble. But let's move through this text. Let's move through this text here in Hebrews chapter 10 and notice what is said. Number one, here's what's said in the text. Here are the benefits of assembling. Look at verse 24. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Do you know when we assemble together, we're stirring up one another into love and good works? That's the benefit of being here. You're stirring up others. They're stirring up you into love and good works. Look at verse 25. We exhort one another. Not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another. You know how you're exhorting? By not neglecting the assembling of yourselves together. So we have the benefit of being stirred up, the benefit of exhorting one another. But here's something we need to realize in this text. Look at verse 26. For if we sin willfully. Verse 26 is connected to what has been said previous. So let's look beginning at verse 26. and He's going to list what we fail to do. 
when we fail to assemble. Verse 26, number one, we sin willfully. Look at verse 26. For if we sin willfully, after we have received the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. He's just talked about assembling. And when you see that word for, go back. He's just talked about assembling. And when you neglect the assembling of yourselves together, you sin willfully. Look what else he says. Verse 29. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy of thee? Listen. Who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? You know when you neglect the assembling of yourselves together, you are ignoring the sacrifice of Christ and you're trampling the Son of God underfoot? Look again in verse 29. Counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing. You've counted the blood of the covenant as a common thing by neglecting the assembling of yourselves together. And then in verse 29, and insulted the Spirit of grace. You've insulted the Spirit of grace by neglecting to assemble together. That's what we do by failing. We see the benefit is we exhort one another, we can stir up one another, but if we, if we fail to assemble, we sin willfully, we trample the Son of God underfoot, count the blood of common as a common thing, and insult the Spirit of grace. And none of us want to be accused of that. But it's the very thing we do when we neglect to assemble together. But notice not just that, notice the punishment for failing. No longer a sacrifice for sins. For if we sin willfully, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. You need to think about the context of, of Hebrews chapter 10 for just a second. Beginning back at verse 19, he's beginning the second half of the book of Hebrews. But he's just finished in 9 and 10 by talking about Jesus being the perfect sacrifice. The blood of bulls and goats was insufficient to take away our sins, but there was the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so that's why we have forgiveness of sins, because He is the perfect sacrifice. He's the only sacrifice whereby we can be forgiven of our sins. But if you ignore His command, the command's giving beginning at verse 19 and going through verse 25, ending with assembling, when we ignore the commands of God, when we reject the commands of God, we have trampled underfoot the Son of God as we've already seen and counted the blood of the covenant as a common thing. And what we've done is we've sinned willfully. And because of that, we no longer have a sacrifice for sins. When we reject the command of Christ, we reject Him as the true sacrifice. And when we reject Him, there is no other sacrifice. And you know He said did that? Not the adulterer in this text, not the murderer, not the thief, but the one who neglects to assemble together. Look at verse 27. But a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation. We face fiery indignation. Verse 30. We will face judgment. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge His people. Verse 27 says we face a fearful expectation of judgment. We will be judged. And then ultimately, verse 31, it says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. What we do is we fall into the hands of the living God and we face punishment when we neglect to assemble together. That's what the context of Hebrews 10 is dealing with. It's pointed out beginning at 24 and going here through verse 31. We need to understand there are many that may fail, that still fail to assemble. Oh, they'll be here at times. Assemble at times. May be here every Sunday morning, but not any other time. Those that may assemble on Sunday morning and even Sunday evening, but they may not be back at other times. You see, there are those that assemble that think, I assemble, I was here, but they forsake other assemblies. They may not be here on Wednesdays. Or, and here's something we need to understand, may not attend a gospel meeting. 
What happens is people look at Hebrews 10.25 and they cut out neglecting the assembling of yourselves together and paste in. Do not neglect the assembling of yourselves together on Sunday morning. Or they cut it out and they paste in. Do not neglect the assembling of yourselves together on Sunday at all. Or they may even cut it out, not neglect the assembling yourselves together on Sunday and Wednesday. But they think what the rest of it says is, but you can neglect on Sunday night. For those that want to be there just Sunday morning and Wednesday night. Or you can, you can neglect Wednesday. Or maybe somebody's here every Sunday and every Wednesday, but not here during a gospel meeting. They think it says, the assemble together at your normal times, but you can neglect the assembly during a gospel meeting. You can neglect the assembly during what we consider a special service. We need to understand something. On Wednesday night, we are assembled just like we are on Sunday morning. During a gospel meeting, we are assembled just as much as we are on Sunday morning. No, we may not serve the Lord's Supper, but we are still assembled and we are commanded to be here if we assemble together. And so we need to be here when we are assembled together. It's the command of God. And when we fail to do so, we face, we fall into the hands of the living God and we have trampled the Son of God underfoot. And none of us want to be accused of doing such a thing. The question we need to ask is, do we have a cut and paste Bible when it comes to assembly? There are many that do. Let us make sure that we are not one of those. Do you have a cut and paste Bible? We've asked, do we have a cut and paste Bible when it comes to divorce and remarriage? Or marriage and divorce and remarriage? When it comes to the roles in the home, when it comes to church discipline, and when it comes to assembly? You know, I said earlier, there are many other issues which we could have discussed where people cut and paste, cut out what they want, or what they don't want and paste in what they do. But now is the time at which we must reflect. Oh, have we ever been guilty or are we guilty of cutting out of God's Word and pasting in what we want it to say? Revelation 22, 18 and 19 says, in Revelation 22, 18 and 19, that I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. There's no that when it comes to some things, but there are times we cut out what God's Word said and paste in what we want it to say. We need to understand we've got to follow all of God's Word, no more and no less. We cannot cut out what we don't want, that's taking away from. We cannot add in what we want it to say, that's, that, paste in what we want it to say, that's adding to. And both are in Revelation 22 are said to be wrong. The question is, do you have a cut and paste Bible? We need to make sure we don't. We need to reflect, as I said a second ago, on ourselves and make sure that we're not guilty of having a cut and paste Bible. It may be that there is one or more present this evening who has never responded in obedience to the Gospel. If you're here and you've not done that, now is the time. You're not guaranteed of another opportunity for what is our life but a vapor that appears for a short time and vanishes away. So if you're here and you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, are you willing to repent of your sins, to confess your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism, to rise and walk in a newness of life? Maybe you're here and you've done that, but somewhere along the line, you say, I've not lived as I should. And if you're willing to, re to repent of that and to confess your sins, then we'll pray with you and for you for God to forgive you. But no matter your need, if we can assist you in any way which not comfort us together, we stand as we sing.